Well, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 3. And while you're getting to Exodus, I wanted to tell you a story. And this happened back in 2011. I actually saw this on David Letterman. I don't normally watch David Letterman, but this was just one of those times that it caught my attention. And uh, it was just an incredible story. But it happened back in 2011 on a ranch near Whitefish, Montana. And uh, there was a female wrangler by the name of Erin Bolster. And uh, she would lead horseback riding trips out into the wilderness. And she was leading on this particular day a group of about eight people all on horseback, you know, out in the woods and just enjoying creation. It was an awesome time and, and uh, it was just a beautiful day. They're riding horses and her horse, Tonk, just kind of froze up. Has anybody heard this story yet? It's an incredible story. Her horse just like froze up and she knew, you know, horses have that animal instinct. In them. She knew something was wrong. And she heard this rustling in the bushes that got louder and louder like it was coming towards them. And so she looked over there and out, you know, running through the bushes and pops out of the trees there comes a small deer. And that's not normal for deer. If you're a hunter, you know that deer are like running at horses and people and stuff. They try to stay away. And so she was just like, that's not normal. And this deer pops out and it's almost like, you know, bumping off the horses as it's trying to get away from something. And the noise in the bushes isn't getting quieter, it's getting louder and louder and bigger sounding. And all of a sudden, a 750-pound grizzly bear comes popping out of the, t- the trees, you know, and it's, uh, it's just chaos. All these horses, most of them, seven out of the eight other horses, bolted back to safety, back, you know, to camp with their, with their riders. And uh, uh, the deer got away in kind of the confusion and the chaos. The grizzly bear, bear lost its target. It's looking around, and it kind of zones in on a horse that has an eight-year-old boy on the horse. You can imagine just what's going through everybody's mind. And so at this moment, Erin Bolster, I don't know what possessed her to do this, but she saw the grizzly bear with its eyes on the, the eight-year-old boy who was having a hard time just staying on his horse. And uh, she knew what was happening. And so the, the bear started going after the little eight-year-old boy, and Aaron and her horse Tonk uh, came and kind of cut the bear off and looked at it, kind of positioned themselves in between, and started charging the bear, the grizzly bear, talking about craziness. And so they're going, imagine a grizzly bear and a horse and a rider going at each other. I mean, head-on collision. They're playing chicken. And uh, Aaron would later say she was just hoping that the bear would say chicken first. And they got 10 feet apart before the bear rose up on its hind legs, stood up, and she said it was looking her in the eyes. That's how big this grizzly bear was, looking her in the eyes, and uh, she's just staring at it. And finally, it it stops, it stands up, and it kind of turns to the side and starts to run off to the side a little bit. Wasn't over yet, though. The grizzly bear hadn't given up on getting to the little boy over there who had fallen off of his horse by this point. It went around Aaron and her horse Tonk and continued to pursue the little, go after the little boy. And so Aaron got her, her horse Tonk, reined him in, come, you know, turned around and started coming in perpendicular at the side of the grizzly bear and started charging him a second time. And I don't know, the bear is probably kind of like, this eight-year-old boy might taste good, but he's not worth it. And so the grizzly bear finally gave up pursuit and ran off and ran away. And Aaron, of course, was considered to be a hero. You know, that's incredible, the amount of bravery, being able to see, uh, you know, a little boy that was, I, you, you know what the end of the little boy would have been if she hadn't stepped in. But I want to focus on the horse. 
Imagine if you were that horse. Aaron kind of had a little decision in the whole matter, right? She's kind of like, she could have, and no one would have like blamed her if she was like, oh yeah, was, and my horse took off and there's nothing I could do. Sorry, parents, you know, about your little boy, you know, everybody would have understood that. But no, she was like, she decided to stand her ground. She had a kind of a choice in the matter, but that poor horse, you know, it's like getting somebody yanking on the reins. Oh, it's, it's wanting to go this way. And it's like, oh, you know, it's just like conflicting with its nature. That's not normal for a horse to go and charge a grizzly bear. They don't train horses this, like this. You know, they don't say, okay, we're going to do the grizzly charging practice test or whatever it is. Horses don't do this. That's not normal. And it goes against all their nature, everything that's ingrained in them, all of their instincts. You don't charge grizzly bears. You just don't do it. It's not natural. And the reason I tell you that story is because I bet you that Moses, in the passage we're reading today, had a lot of the same feelings of conflict when God appeared to him in this passage. Now, hopefully, you've all made it to Exodus chapter 3 by now. We're going to start in verse 1 and just read along with me. We're going to read up to verse 9, starting off here. Exodus chapter 3, verse 1 says this, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning and yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight. Why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that, he turned aside to see. And God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and have come down to deliver them out of the land of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, and the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Now, up to this moment, Moses is having a pretty awesome day. This is a great day Moses is having. He's enjoying God's creation. He's out in the wilderness. You know, it's kind of like how we like having our, our uh, time alone with God and our, our devotions. You know, being out in nature, kind of getting close to God. And, and Moses is out there. And, uh, you know, he's, he's seeing a miracle. We like praying for miracles, you know, or like in the Sunday morning service here, you know, uh, Moses is having a great day and this burning bush is, is just going off and it's not being consumed. And, and, uh, you know, imagine that as a YouTube video, I would have had my camera out and be like, wow, guys aren't going to believe this. You know, wait till I show my life group guys, we're going to be running some tests on how we can get something to burn and not be consumed. This would be amazing. You know, and, and, uh, so Moses got to meet with God out in nature, and he got to hear God's voice. And he heard some great news. God said uh, that he was planning to rescue the Israelites from their circumstances, oppression by the Egyptians for 400 years, and that God was going to bless them and give them a land to call their own, a home flowing, uh, home flowing with milk and honey. 
and which was much anticipated fulfillment of God's a, a promise to Abraham hundreds and hundreds of years before. That's great. That's an awesome day. And again, that's a lot like, our, like we want our own personal devotion times to go with God or, or the morning worship service here. We want God to show up. We want God to do some miracles. You know, we want him to rescue from our, us from our circumstances, and we want him to bless us immensely and richly. The only thing that can make this any better at this point is maybe if you could add in a cup of coffee. You know, that would just like, oh, wow, this is just perfect. Lord, thank you. Now, some theologians look at this passage, and they say that coffee was involved in Moses' spiritual experience here, saying that Moses was standing on holy grounds. I don't know. It's just a little, little S. Makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? God, Moses was standing on holy grounds. Can I hear a javaluya? No, anyway, yeah. I know, it's going to be one of those mornings, right? Pastor jokes, kind of like dad's jokes. You just embrace them and go with them. And the cornier they are, the more funny they are eventually become. I like to think that anyway. So if I embarrass you guys by being your pastor, I don't care. <laughs> All right. So Javaluya. I personally don't care if there's coffee in heaven or not. I just want to, I want there to be sugar and French vanilla flavoring. And then we're, we're all good to go. But again, theologians point to the book of Hebrews, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm embracing it this morning. That's proof. Anyways, there's coffee. That was the only thing that would make this whole outdoor God, Moses God experience, you know, better. But then God drops the hammer on Moses' quiet time, his time alone with God, and it takes it to a whole new level, a level that I think is part of the reason why we don't like doing our own devotions and our own personal time, spending time in Scripture and our time alone with God, because we're kind of afraid that the same thing that's going to happen to Moses here in this passage is going to happen to us. Verse 10, pick up there again. Verse 10, it says, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Oh, my God, you were just saying you're going to rescue your people, and now you're saying I'm going to rescue your people. Big transition there, didn't it? You know, it's all, a bit, all of a sudden, it wasn't just what we, God, we wanted God to do, you know, fulfilling his promises. He says, but Moses, I want you to go and do it. I'm going to send you to Pharaoh. That's Moses' grizzly bear moment. He is eye to eye with, with this grizzly. You want me to stand eye to eye with this grizzly bear, this Pharaoh? Because Moses' position, I don't know if most of you probably realize it, his position as a former prince of Egypt was a precarious one. He wasn't Egyptian, he was Hebrew. And if there are any doubts to where Moses' loyalties lie, they were totally erased when Moses killed an Egyptian in order to rescue a Hebrew slave. Totally erased. And so God coming to Moses and asking him to go back to Egypt and Pharaoh is kind of like asking, uh, asking Eric Snowden to come back to the United States and be an evangelist. You know, like, that's not going to work out very well, is it? Not a good idea. None of us would have thought of that, would we? But that's kind of like what God's plan for Moses is here. Verse 11 says, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children out of Egypt? Now, some see, th see this verse right here as part of Moses' list of excuses on why not to go and that God should find someone else. And Moses certainly digresses to get to that point in just a little bit. He starts making up excuses later on, and he says some of the effect of, I am not an eloquent speaker, send somebody else. The irony is that Moses 
one of the commentaries I was reading said this. The irony is that Moses used 21 Hebrews words arranged in kind of a complicated way in order to say he was an eloquent speaker to God. You know, like God couldn't see through it in the first place, but then he just goes ahead and blows his alarm. I don't know how it all worked out, but it's kind of ironic there. He certainly digresses into making excuses, but I don't think these first two questions he asks of God are completely just making excuses. I think they are hard questions that we all ask. Two very valid questions that until they are answered, threaten to sideline, threaten to sideline Moses and threaten to sideline us today from fulfilling God's purpose in our lives. The first question Moses asks is, who am I? Moses was raised an Egyptian, but he is Hebrew by birth. He was a prince, but now he's a sheep herder. He lived in Egypt for 40 years, but now he's lived in Midian for 40 years. He was a murderer, but now he's a family man. He's 80 years old. Here he's starting to feel the, con the conflict and complexity of, of who Moses is, his identity. Who is this guy? Who, who am I? I think it's a legitimate question. I think, I think there, it's not just a getting out of an excuse. Who am I that I should go? Who am I? I understand this question and the confusion. I looked at this and I'm like, I'm, I'm from Georgia. I'm from Texas. I'm from Oklahoma. I'm from Arizona. I'm from Chicago, which we all know isn't Illinois. I'm from Chicago. I live there. I live in uh, Wisconsin and now I'm in Michigan. Where am I from? You know, if we use that as kind of who we are, it's like, I don't know. I'm, I'm thoroughly confused because of this. I don't know whether to call like carbonated beverages Coke soda, soda pop, or pop. That's a hard thing to keep track of, and people make fun of you if you don't get it right. I don't know why that is. I have no clue where I should be buried one day. You know, you know I hear people talking about that question. It's like, I don't know where I want to be buried. And you're like, well, be buried where your family is. I don't know if you know this about me, but I'm adopted. My last name is not Lepard. Yeah, I, I don't worry. I don't have like a sketchy past on covering up things. I was adopted, you know. <laughs> I was adopted when I was 10, and I haven't seen, my real last name was Ruff, and I haven't lived with my Ruff family since I was 10 and had a whole lot of meaningful, you know, interaction with them for, you know, I'm 40 now, quite a few, few years. But to complicate things, you're like, oh, the Lepards are your family now. It's like, yeah, they are, but I don't, I've never really hung out with the Lepard families. And can complicate even more, my father, who is a Lepard, is not a Lepard. He was adopted and doesn't know who his parents were either. You're like... You're right, John. Who are you? You know, like it's confusing. Who are you? How do we define who we are? Who am I? When we look at, honestly at ourselves, it's more than just, you know, where we're from and what we do and all these things. When we look honestly at ourselves, we become keenly aware of our flaws or insecurities and our shortcomings. And to make matters worse, other people are more than happy to help us in that endeavor, aren't they? And just a chapter before in Exodus chapter 2, Moses is coming up to uh, two Hebrews, uh, Hebrew guys, and they're fighting. And he comes up to them and he's like, hey guys, you're brothers, you're Hebrews, you shouldn't be fighting. And they, their response is, who are you? Who made you king? Who made you, you know, judge to be able to tell us what to do? Other people are more than happy to ask the same exact question. Like, we don't know who we are, well, you know, badly enough, poorly enough. Other people are like, who are you? They ask us the same thing. You know, it all adds to these insecurities of who we are. It's a deeply personal question. How do we define 
ourselves. It's a social question. Who, who are we? Who are we? This may come to a surprise to you, but I don't, I don't like public, public speaking. I don't know many pastors who go into pastoral ministry because they like public speaking. It reveals a lot of insecurities. It's kind of like open a raw nerve for you to like, I mean, and everyone likes to tell you how you did, you know, which is really difficult. You know, it's like, it's like uh, you get critiqued. It's like being back in school again. That was the worst part of school is at the end of every time you had to get up and do something or present a project, you got a grade and we get graded. You know, it's, it's a very difficult thing to do. It's, it exposes insecurities because, you know, I'm not the world's greatest theologian. I'm not the world's greatest, you know, pastor. I'm not the world's greatest. You can just go through the whole list. I'm not witty. I'm not funny. None of these things are new to you. You're like, I know this. Amen, Pastor John. You know, I'm not, I, I, like, I question, why do I have the right and authority? You know, who am I to stand up in front of you, an imperfect father, an imperfect husband, you know, a sinner who continues to sin, that's hopefully no surprise to most of you either. Who am I? I don't, I'm not the only one that struggles through these questions of insecurity in, our, in my life. I know you guys have your own list of who am I too? Where, where did I come from? Where am I going to die? You know, what do I call soda? I don't know. You have your own list of things. So I think it's totally right that Moses wrestles with this question. God says, I want you to go to Pharaoh, grizzly bear moment. Moses says, who am I? But as long as the source of that answer comes from within ourselves, which is a very popular place that people are saying, find the answers within yourself, follow your inner self, you know, whatever it is. As long as the answer comes from within ourselves or from others, we will never be enough to accomplish what God has for us. We will either wallow in the depressing reality of our insufficiencies or live in a delusional dream of our grandeur. Moses asked, who am I? Life's great question. When you get to heaven, what are you going to ask God? If you could ask God right now, what would you ask God? I know some of you are like, I'm going to ask him if there's coffee in heaven. Caden would ask him if there's tacos in heaven. I'd probably, who am I? I think it would be right at the top of the list. Who am I? Who am I? And this is the beautiful thing is Moses is asking this question, and in verse 4, God responds. Look at, uh, look at verse, I'm sorry, in the next four verses, God responds, and we're going to pick up in verse 12 here. Listen carefully, because God is answering Moses' question of who he is. Verse 12, God says, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Did you get who Moses was? Hold on a second. We must have read over it. We must have, like, missed it. Just, you were daydreaming or something. Let's read it again. Moses says, God, who am I that I should go? God's response, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. I read that twice, and God did never said, Moses, this is who you are, did he? Did y'all catch anything in there? It's like God totally like skipped over the question. Is this an awkward moment? Like, uh, God raised my hand. God, but who am I? God doesn't, God didn't miss the question. I think he's answering the question 
and in a very important way for us to recognize. Who am I? God answers, but not answering directly as if to say to Moses, it doesn't matter who you are. That kind of hurts. Totally ignored the question of who Moses is. And starts talking about, I will be with you. Just to say, it doesn't matter who you are. It matters who I am. Big difference, isn't it? It doesn't matter who you are. It matters who I am. We don't like to hear that. It doesn't matter who you are. Maybe I should. Does it matter? It matters less who you are, and it matters more who God is. It's probably a better way of putting it. But we don't like to hear that. It doesn't matter who you are. That's not the question. That's not the real issue. The real issue is who I am. It is an important. This is one of the greatest points of salvation is that it doesn't matter who we are. This is one of the, the core truths, the thing that makes salvation so amazing. It, is, it doesn't matter who we are, and it's a good thing because we are all sinners. And if it mattered who we were, none of us would be qualified to be able to inherit God's eternal gift of, of being with him and inheriting you know, heaven and the new earth for eternity. We wouldn't deserve it. It is a good thing that it doesn't matter who we are, but it does matter who God is. And God says, I will be with you. Now, my girls, you would think like the worst thing as a father that I could ask my girls to do is to go down to the basement and get something out of the pantry down there for Eunice or to send them out to the chickens to put them up after dark. They're like scary moments for them, for the girls, to do those things. I don't know why basements are scary and obviously dark, scary outside. You know, it's just one of those freaky moments. And then I'm like, just go. There's nothing down there, you know. And they're like, can I take my sister? And they usually pick one slower than themselves, you know, to go with them down to the basement or out to the chickens. You know, but as, as a father, I'm like, I'm coaching them through this. I'm like, there's nothing down there. There's nothing outside that is going to eat you or destroy you. You know, there's absolutely nothing. It's just dark. Just turn on the lights. You will be fine. I am almost on top of you. I'm upstairs. I'm, I'm, still, I'm almost closer to you when you're down in the basement than I am now because I'm only like eight feet away from you. I'm like on top of you almost. I'm like talking through all these things. I'm like, be courageous. Be bold. You know, uh, find, you know look in your inner self and find strength to go down there and be brave. You know, it doesn't matter what I say as a parent. They are freaking out. They are scared. They are. They are. We can just keep filling in the blank with what they are. They're little chickens is what they are. You know, I was too. We can't get on to them. They are. They are. They are afraid. They are fearful. They are exposed. They're insecure. They are vulnerable. But I am daddy. I am daddy. I am daddy. I am daddy. Does that make a difference when they go down to the basements or out the chickens to have their daddy with them? You bet it does. It makes all the difference in the whole world that daddy is there. You should see them laugh and joke. That's some of my favorite times walking in the dark to go to shut up the chickens because they're holding my hand and they're just bouncing around and I'm lifting them up and playing with them. And, and they're just talking and chattering like there's not a care or concern in the whole world. But they would never go out there by themselves. makes all the difference. That daddy is with them. Everything changes. What changes is the fear is totally gone. 
and it's replaced with worship. I'm not saying that my kids worship me, but there is a deepening of relationship that happens when I walk through my kids and their greatest fears with them. And when we return, they are joyful and happy and glad that I am their daddy. And they say that I am the best daddy in the whole world. And unless you have five or more kids in this room with you today, I am the best daddy. We're a church because all mine are downstairs. I get more votes than anyone else. Does anybody else have five kids here today? I'm the best daddy. It's true. So it still is kind of all about me. I know, I know. But isn't that what worship is? God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God said, it doesn't matter who you are because I am with you. It doesn't matter the insecurities, fear, or anything of my little girls. All that mattered was that I was with them and everything else doesn't matter, fades away. Matters who God is. God gave him this sign. I think this was funny. He says, uh, he says, this will be a sign to you that I'm with you, is that you'll come back and worship on this mountain, Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, the mountain of Moses. Isn't it funny that he got a sign after? I like my signs before I go do something scary, personally, kind of like Gideon, like, you know, put out the sign beforehand. God's like, I'll give you a sign after we're done. We're going to come back here. But worship is the response, is the sign of God's faithfulness. That's the incredible thing. Worship is a sign of God's faithfulness. Why do we get together and we worship God? Because God is worthy of our praise first and foremost. But you know what? It is a sign. You coming in here and hearing somebody singing next to you, worship, praises God, praising God, is a sign of God's faithfulness. And I don't know why this is, but sometimes it's clear. It, we can see things more clearly in other people's lives than we can ourselves. We all have an aunt that is especially good at doing that, isn't, aren't they? Yes, we all have that aunt. But you know how it is? We can see stuff more clearly in other people's lives sometimes than our own. That's why God says don't forsake the gathering together of believers. It's because we can look and we can see God's faithfulness when people worship and when they sing and when they give testimony to what God is doing. That's why I love life group. It's because when, when I'm not seeing God's hand working and moving all the way, when I'm depressed, you know, I'm down in despair, I look at somebody else's life that I can see oh so clearly how far they've come and I can see how God is working in, in crazy ways in their lives. I'm like, oh, yeah, he must be doing that here too. Sometimes I just don't see it the same way. Worship is a sign of God's faithfulness. And he told Moses, he's like, I'll give you proof. When you come back to this very mountain that I'm asking you to do this crazy thing standing in front of this grizzly bear, you're going to see that I am faithful to my promises. Go down to verse 13 here. Moses said, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Second question that Moses, is, Moses asked. First one is, who am I? And then he says, who am I going to say sent me? Another great question. Another great question. God says to Moses, I am who I am. I am your daddy. This is, you could spend a whole sermon just on I am who I am. God's saying, I am your daddy. I am everybody's daddy. I am that grass's daddy. I am that tree's daddy. I am the sky's daddy. I am the Milky Way's daddy. I am your daddy. God's saying, God is saying this. He's saying, I am Pharaoh's daddy. I am Egypt's daddy. I am your daddy. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I do not grow weary. I do not get tired. I am full of inexhaustible energy and potential. There is no greater statistic in the Hall of Fames of the world 
There is no greater fact in the history of the world, in the Smithsonian, all the museums. There's no greater potential in all the works of science fiction than what is tied up in the great I am. I am with you. I am sending you. There is nothing that is not God that God is in need of. He is self-sufficient, all-powerful, all-knowing. So God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people, I am has sent you. God said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all the generations. The great question, what shall I say when they ask me who sent me? People say this all the time. Our culture, if there's one thing that really makes it difficult for us to go and be faithful to God's call to, to share the good news of the gospel, two things. One, I feel disqualified in my own life because we all know Christians are hypocrites. That's why we are in, the difference is that we know it. Everyone's hypocrites. The difference is we know it, we accept it, we embrace it and say, that's why I need a savior. But still, we get those insecurities in our life. It's like, who am I to go and tell someone how they should live their life? Who am I? And they're more than happy to ask us too, who are you to tell me what to do? We're like, you're right. I don't know who I am. I don't know. If the question of who we are stops with us or we let other people answer it, we will never be qualified to fulfill God's mission and purpose in our lives. Who am I? Who are you to come and tell me what to do? And be like me running out on an NFL football field. And, you know, sometimes I get, it's maddening. I was talking to Matt Kirkland earlier in the Michigan-Michigan State game and some of the calls. You know, it's like sometimes you want to go out there and start throwing your own little yellow flags and blowing your little whistle. What if I did that? Everybody look at me and be like, okay, who's this crazy guy? They'd cart me off and say I'm, I'm insane. Why is it? that these 350-pound guys all on this field listen to these little scrawny guys like Dave. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of, you're going to throw it this morning, aren't you, Dave? I'm just getting you back because you were being mean to me with a candy. Why do people listen to Dave? Nothing against Dave. Why do people listen to the referees? I'm stealing this from Tony Evans because it's really his illustration, but it's, it's a good one. The reason these 350-pound guys listen to referees is because they are marked with an authority that is not their own. They bear the stripes that designate them as being sent by a higher authority than themselves. And that is what God is doing with Moses, and that's what he wants to do with us. Amen? We are marked with a higher authority than our own. We are marked by the blood of Jesus. The stripes that he bore on the cross for our sins. Who are we? We are sinners saved by grace. What is our authority to go? It's not from me. It's not because of who I am. It's because of who the I am has sent me. Now, I think we all wish that God is like, God, it'd be great if you 
talk to me like you did Moses, send me a burning bush. Wouldn't that be amazing? Send me a burning bush and talk to me and I'll listen. In the book of Hebrews, one of the, I love this passage. It says, in the four, in the, like previous times, God spoke in various ways and means. Like back in the Old Testament, God, God spoke, through, spoke through a donkey, spoke through a bush, he spoke through prophets, spoke through all kinds of crazy things. And we're like, why can't he just do that today? I'd listen. I'd have an issue with that because God's people didn't always listen in the Old Testament. But this is, this is the crux of it, is that the bush was just a shadow. The bush was just an echo. The bush was just a foreshadowing of what was to come because the sign that, Jesus, that God uses to speak to every single one of us is Jesus because Jesus, the full wrath of God's anger and righteous judgment on the, the fullness of humanity's sin was poured out on one man. He was burned, he, but he was not consumed. He died, but he was not dead. Bush is cool. It's YouTube worthy. Jesus is awesome and amazing and is Savior of the world worthy. Who am I? It doesn't matter. One of the greatest truths that God has given us. It matters who Jesus is, what he did on the cross, and what God has called us to do as a result of that. Jesus is the sign, and he is the answer to who we are. Sinners saved by grace, marked with the blood of Jesus. And he is the authority by which we have been called to go and proclaim the news of the gospel. I am not afraid. I am not ashamed. I am not condemned because I am a name that is greater than any other name. Amen? Name that is greater than any other name, an absolute name. An all-powerful, inexhaustible, all-knowing name. Loved me, saved me, sent me, and he is with me. Amen? Amen. So next time you wonder who you are, people ask you, who made you my judge? Who, who made you, spoke, you know, spokesman? Sounds kind of hard. It's going to be hard for people to stomach, but really, we can say, God. And we can say that unapologetically. Unapologetically. Don't apologize for our daddy asking us to be the spokesman. My girls don't. They're more than happy when I say, go tell your sister. They're like, daddy said for you to. They're more than happy to. We should be too. 